Well, good morning, everyone. It's been a great morning and a great family meeting. Looking forward to our time in the Word. Um, before we get started, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate a gift that uh, Roger Wisdom gave me as he uh, stepped away from the pulpit. He and the other elders uh, encouraged and provided and, and uh, made a way for me to take a week every year of silence and solitude to pray and consider where God might be leading us as a church, where God might be leading my heart as we I plan and prepare for sermons throughout the year. And that's what I've been doing over the last week is taking that time uh, to do just that. And it is such a blessing. Uh, and I'm so, so grateful for that. And grateful to be a part of a family that encourages that, who prays for me and uh, allows me to uh, spend that time knowing that I'm well covered. Because I'll be honest with you, um, it was interesting this year being alone uh, for a week, separate from anybody for a long way away from me, and do a sermon on spiritual warfare. <laughs> um, it put me in a place where I had to practice what I was going to be preaching. Um, but it's been good, and, I, and I'm excited about what the Lord has put on my heart for us to walk through together this morning. But as we get started, I think it's real important to tie these together. So I'm going to hit some of the highlights of what we talked about last week because we need to connect it to what we're going to walk through uh, this morning. Last week we talked about the fact that we have an adversary. Um, if we, uh, that 1 Peter 5.8 says, be of sober spirit, be on alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The reality is that we are in a spiritual battle. And that there is an evil force of darkness that is constantly at work and one in which we are powerless to overcome. You may remember, I told you last week, boy, if you want to go toe-to-toe with the enemy, don't do it because you're going to lose every single time. He's a master at finding ways to deceive, to divide, to discourage, and to destroy But at the same time, we know that Scripture tells us that we are not ignorant of the devil's scheme. He has a predictable pattern of deceit. And we walked through some of that last time because very often he'll want to try and convince you that God is withholding something from you. That there's something better out there that, that his commandments that are so burdensome are ultimately restricting you from. He wants to make a deal to convince you to trade God's promises for his suggestions and he always wraps that murderous lie with a thin layer of truth things that definitely look good things that feel good things that promise to to satisfy what our heart longs for most but he's wanting to make a trade he wants you to understand that he's telling you there's something better and you know what you deserve it so let's make a deal But as we see in Romans 6.16, you are a slave to the one that you obey. And so if you accept his offer, it requires of you to deny God's truth. That's why John writes in 1 John, we can't say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness because we would be a liar and the truth would not be in us. The, The idea there is you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
And we talked about last week how it's important for us as believers to know that we are not exempt. We are not immune from Satan's temptations. He will mislead, if possible, even the elect. He'll bury us under a burden of guilt and anxiety, fear and discouragement. We have enough reality around us to know that he divides families. He divides marriages. He causes factions and divisions within a church. And it's all of his handiwork. But we learned last week that Jesus makes it clear if we abide in his truth, that that truth will set us free. That there's power in building our life on the foundation of God's truth. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Looking at the importance of following through with what God has promised. And we're going to answer that question. How, how do you stand strong in the midst of a spiritual battle? And here's what I believe the answer to be, and I believe it sincerely with all my heart. I'm going to tell you what it is up front, and then we're going to walk through it together in detail. The answer is this. Our victory begins with our surrender. Our victory begins with our surrender. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we want to understand your provisions. We know that we have an enemy, an adversary, who is evil in every way, who is active constantly. He is po- we are powerless to overcome him in and of ourselves. But you have promised resources that allow us to overcome the evil one. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So this morning, would you help us understand the promises and provisions that are proclaimed in your word that we can live by in order to overcome what he intends to do in our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to James chapter 4 verse 3 is where we're going to start. James chapter 4. As I've done uh, last week, I'll do it again this week. A lot of these verses are going to be up there. Love for you to look them up just to see them in your Bible. But uh, I wanted you to see them in both places. But James chapter 4 verse 3 says this. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to remind you that Satan uses this kind of deception to convince you to make a trade. And as we talked about, believers are not immune. In fact, James is writing this letter to a church, to a body of believers, to Christians, people who have made a commitment to follow Christ, but he tells them that in that they are having an affair with the world. That's why he says that they are adulteresses. They're claiming to be committed to one thing, but having an affair with with something else. And he identifies the root issue as pride. In verse 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud. 
they're asking for God's blessings in order to turn around and use them for selfish desires. And there's great arrogance for those who intend to do that. They want to be religious and do the right things, maybe show up here on Sunday, but then be just like everybody else in the world Monday through Saturday. And he says that is adultery. It'd be kind of like this. It'd be as, as if I, being married, reserved the right to continue to date other women. Okay, I, I love my wife, and, and, and yet it doesn't mean that I can't be friends with other women. And sure, we, we flirt and tease and do those kinds of things, but just because I pursue other women doesn't mean that I don't love my wife. That is a, that's a lie. And what arrogance for anyone to claim that they could have both and yet be faithful to one. That's the heart that he has in mind when he's writing this. You see, your interest in other women, whether virtual or real, defiles the love of your relationship in marriage with your wife. Selfish pride is the only reason that you can be convinced to have both at the same time. How arrogant. And so that's why he's telling us this, because do you hear the lie of Satan there? There's something better. You can have both. Let's make a deal. So the question is, how do you overcome that temptation, that deception that the enemy puts in front of us? Well, look at verse 7 of that passage. It says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's very important as you look at that passage to see that your, your, your victory begins with surrender. Your submission to God is the goal. It, it didn't say, resist the devil and he would flee. Now, I know that when we often quote that verse, that's what we say. Resist the devil and he will flee. We leave out that fir first part, don't we? Resist the devil and he will flee. I want to tell you something, that that in and of itself is not true. He will not flee. In fact, he'll just get more creative on how to capture you with his deception. Bowing up as if you're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the answer is not the answer. Bowing down is the answer. A, a heart of humility, a heart of praise and worship of God. Your victory begins with your surrender. Submit to God is what comes first. That word submit is actually a military term means to subordinate or to render obedience to someone. And, and all those terms that you see after that in that passage, cleanse your hearts, uh, be miserable and mourn, humble yourselves. He's speaking to a proud people who are having an affair with the world, and he's saying, listen, this is what it looks like to have a heart of repentance when you're two-timing on God. Worshipful, worshipful submission is ultimately like the kryptonite to Satan's deception. 
Because when you have that humble heart of praise before the Lord, he loses his foothold in your life to tell you lies. When you have that posture of praise before God, that's when you are strengthened in your ability to stand firm against the enemy. Your victory begins with surrender. But I want you to see how you're made strong in his presence. So turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is a passage you expected me to get to, I'm sure, because this uh, is very commonly used to talk through, and rightly so, this issue of spiritual warfare. And I want us to to look at this together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This passage tells us how drawing near to God makes us strength, notice, in His might. In His might. I don't know about you, but I've always kind of had this mental picture in my mind when you start talking about the armor of God, of this closet that has all these pieces of armor. And, and it's like I'm going to go into my closet and pull out these pieces of armor to get suited up like I'm getting ready for a football game, right? So I get out there and we can go knock heads with the enemy. But that's not what the Scripture has in mind here, and I want us to see what that looks like. The key to understanding is a, a phrase or a word that's repeated several times there in the beginning. You'll see it in verse 11, twice in verse 13, then again in 14. Stand firm. Resist. Stand firm. Resist. See, the armor of God is for the purpose of resistance. It's defensive in its nature. It's as if we're preparing for a battle where our victory is when we don't let the enemy score. That's the idea that it has in mind. And don't overlook Who the armor belongs to is the armor of God, not the armor of Todd. I'm not pulling in, looking into my closet and finding any of these items. I don't possess them on my own. It's God's armor. And it's that humble posture of worship that allows him to place those pieces of armor upon us. 
Now, I use this illustration probably too often, but as if you haven't figured out already, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is my all-time favorite movie, okay? Those three movies. Now, you may remember in, in the Lord of the Rings, the situation where the elves presented Frodo with that shirt of uh, mithril, which was a, a, a rare metal that the dwarves mined in Middle Earth. And what was special about it is it was, it was like a, a shirt of chain mail, but it was as light as a feather, and it, it sparkled like diamonds. And so you would think that it would be very fragile, but as it turns out, it was strong enough to withstand the thrust of a, sto- a sword. It, it couldn't be penetrated. It was like a bulletproof vest. See, that's the image that I have in mind when I think about God clothing us with his supernatural armor. Just think about these things in total. I'm going to just list them off and just picture these in your mind. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the protection of your feet with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of of the Spirit. As you think about that list, I want you to ask yourself, how many of those do you possess on your own? Anybody here have a corner on the market of truth? Anybody able to be righteous on your own? Anybody have a supernatural shield of faith hiding in your closet? You get the idea? They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And He wants to equip us when we draw near to him in faith. And so we could spend a series looking at all these things, but this morning I just want to hit some of the highlights of what these things mean to us in terms of putting on that armor. Let's start with the the belt of truth. That's a foundational piece. It's intended to hold not only the undergarments that you have on underneath, but the shield and all the things that you have on the outside. It's an anchor, okay? I guess one of the ways you can look at it is there's, there's no sagging in God's army. <laughs> you're not going to be trying to hold up your stuff when you're doing battle. That belt of truth is intended to keep everything in place. It's an anchor. We looked at that passage, John eight thirty two, that says, abide in the truth and the truth will set you free. You cannot be held captive by the enemy's lies, if your life is grounded on truth. When that is your foundation, when you build your life on God's truth, Satan loses his ability to deceive you. So that's important to be the the foundational piece of armor that you put on. And let me mention this too. The way these are listed is actually how a soldier would put them on. And this is what he'd start with. The next thing is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, that's important because it protects your vital organs, right? When you get hit in the heart, what happens? You die, right? And so we need to see this as a, as a righteousness that has been credited to you, not something that you possess on your own. And that's important because the enemy is going to want to condemn you. He's going to want to tell you that you're a failure, that God would never accept you. That you've done one too many things, too wrong, and those are lies. You need the righteousness of God to remind you that there is nothing that the enemy could do to condemn you when you have found 
your salvation through faith in Christ alone. That's the passage, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason is, is because he who knew no sin became sin. All the things that the enemy could condemn you for, he took them. In exchange, he gave you his righteousness. So the enemy no longer has grounds to condemn you. It protects that vital organs of, of who you are as a child of God. Now, in terms of footwear, people would normally wear sandals during this culture, during this time, but not for battle. They actually wore a, a special shoe that was like a cleat, um, and it had kind of an armor plate to, to the front of it. They used it to kind of gain traction, to, to kind of hold their ground in battle. And, and the gospel of peace does the same thing. See, the hope of the gospel is what helps us hold our ground. The passage that comes to my mind is one of my all-time favorites, Psalm 62. For you alone are my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. And in you, I will not be greatly shaken. It's that hope of the gospel that allows us to stand our ground. So that we're realizing that it's the victory that he's accomplished on our behalf. The shield of faith is interesting because it kind of gives a qualifier. It says that it can extinguish the, the flaming arrows of the enemy. Now, think about a flaming arrow. It really has two purposes, doesn't it? One is to kill, but the other is to bring destruction, to set fire to things so that it spreads. What comes to my mind when I think about that is doubt. Because once you start doubting one thing, don't you start doubting a lot of things? And so that shield of faith is what helps you stand strong. As Paul tells the Ephesians, it's what allows us to no longer be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men's craftiness of deceitful scheming. See, faith is what allows you to hold your ground. It protects you from being double-minded so that you can stand firm in that faith. The next is the, the helmet of salvation. Think about that. That's a piece of armor that protects the most important organ in your body, your brain, your mind. And the passage that comes to mind for me is Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. You see, a mind set on the salvation that God promises does not get lost in the ways of the world. It's a life that's lived for something beyond what this world has to offer. It, it protects your focus, the very motivation of how and what you live your life for. And then you have the final piece, the sword of the Spirit, which it qualifies as the Word of God. It's really the only offensive piece of armor that you have, and it's the only one you need. Because as we've already said, Satan cannot stand against the truth of God's Word. There's that beautiful passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 that, that talks about the gift of God's Word, what He's revealed through His Scripture, how it makes us adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about those pieces of armor, but let me make one final observation. I want you to notice that it never says, put on the armor of God so that you can go out there and defeat Satan. 
never says that. I'm going to go back to my Lord of the Rings analogy. You, you think about those movies and you realize, did they fight battles? Of course they did. But they were always on the move. Why? Because they were on a mission. And so are you and I. Wearing the armor is what allows us to persevere in order to be faithful to the mission that we've been called to serve. But ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the only one that has the power and authority to overcome the evil forces of darkness. And what He gives us allows us to stand firm until that day comes when He does exactly that. Puts an end to it. Once and for all, eternity. But until then, that armor is intended for us to stand firm in order to carry out the mission that He has called each of us to as children of God until that day comes. Now, because we're on a mission, it's important to understand that we're on a mission together. This is intended to be something fulfilled through community, through the church. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse uh, 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See, division in the ranks is a disaster on the battlefield. If the enemy can't take us out personally, he'll cause us to turn on one another. You see, the best defense against that kind of division is a heart that is willing to serve. The, a heart that takes that freedom of who we are in Christ and turns it into a heart that looks to love and serve one another. We in our welcome class, if you've ever been to that, give you an illustration of what that looks like. We compare the, the cruise ship to the battleship. We talk about how on a cruise ship, when you go on a cruise, it's all about you, right? How's the food? How's the music? Is my bed comfortable? Is there enough things for me to do while I'm on this cruise for me? But a battleship is different. It's not about amenities. It's about mission. Because we're all there to serve one purpose. We have one commander. And we all have a very important role. So that each and every one of us is vital to carrying out that mission of God. This is a battleship. Not a cruise ship. The enemy is waging war. And the more that we stand together, the more we stand firm. You see, and I see this so often. This is probably one of the things that troubles me most in the church, including this one. Is when people follow the deception of the enemy and they are isolated from the body. Because I see time after time after time, that's when he does his most destructive work. Not just to that person, but to this body. 
Because that person is intended to have a role to carry out the mission that he's called us to. We are stronger when we are together. I mentioned last week a book that I was reading. I finished it this week. A book called Fearless. One of the top five books I've ever read in my life. I was deeply, deeply moved. I've told you it's about a man by the name of Adam Brown, and he was on Navy, he was a Navy SEAL on SEAL Team 6. That's the team that ultimately went and killed Bill, Bin Laden. But one of the things that's interesting, especially as a man, as you read this book, is kind of hearing about the training that these SEALs go through. And a lot of it's confidential, so you don't get all the details, but they tell you enough to realize what they put these men through. And I tell you, I'm reading it going, how in the world is that even humanly possible? How does anybody do that, right? And what's interesting is that the higher you go up in the ranks, the more you're training for those special op teams, the more difficult it becomes. In fact, to the point, as it even says within this book, it says that they want to push you to the point that you would rather die in battle for your brothers than quit to save yourself. Those guys who are on those elite teams, those are the men and the attitude that they have. They would rather die in battle with their brothers than save themselves and survive. I read that. I thought, what would it look like if we had the same perspective in spiritual warfare? What would it look like if we would rather die in the battle for the mission that we've been called to for the cause of Christ than save ourselves and live in comfort and peace? What would it look like? We talked about missions this morning. If that was really our heart, what would it look like for missions at Melanie Park Church? If people would rather die in battle with brothers and sisters in Christ, then be saved themselves in the comfort and peace of the world in which we live in now. What would it look like? What impact would it have, people serving in ministry? What impact would it have in our boldness in proclaiming the gospel? And so let me just ask you, is our mission really that valuable? Do you really believe that the mission that we are called to serve as children of God, servants of Christ, is it of such value that we would rather sacrifice our own lives for the sake of that mission than save our lives and live in peace and comfort? And if it's not that important, then why not? What are we missing? As we finish up, I, I just want to remind you of what we're talking about here. Don't miss what we began with. Our victory begins with surrender. It's evident in a heart that takes sin seriously, that's unwilling to compromise, to, to be double-minded. You see, Christians are people of confession. And it's like taking the garbage out. You don't do it just once. 
to live in the light is to allow God's Spirit to reveal those dark places so that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind to become the person that He's ultimately created you to be. People who draw near to God, knowing that He draws near to them. They know that that's the place that they can find peace and, and forgiveness. They understand that our victory is not in our ability to bow up against the enemy, but to bow down to our Savior. Worshipful submission is the kryptonite to Satan's deception. Let me encourage us to stand firm, to resist, and to do that collectively. It reminds me of that passage in Philippians where Paul's talking, and he says, be of one spirit, of one mind, standing together, striving for the sake of the gospel. What kind of spiritual revival would take place in this church and in our world if there were people called by Christ's name who were willing to die for him rather than save their life and live in comfort and peace? Let me encourage you to look closely at Scripture because I think you'll see that the biggest impacts in the world have occurred through people who've had that heart. Tell me if this sounds familiar. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Or how about this? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the mission, they will be truly saved. What on earth are we living for? Is it a battle we're worth dying for? Let me pray for us. Father, I just think about how in your providence you work all things together. It's not, uh, it's not a coincidence that this morning we talked about missions and what might that look like for Melanie Park. And we made a commitment together as a church family that we would pray for that for the next year. And then here you make it very clear through your word through the example of of your life and in the life of your disciples that we have a mission a mission worth dying for what does that look like when it's being lived out in the life of this church family father i think about even the coincidence that i read this book that so deeply moved me And I can say with all sincerity that I understand and appreciate because of what I read what it really means to give your life for the sake of a mission that you would rather die for than save your life and quit in the process of. Father, I pray that this becomes a church family that is galvanized, that stands firm because they are unified by the spirit that indwells each and every one of us, that we are of one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel, that the intensity and passion with which we live our lives is built upon the mission that we've been called to serve together. And I pray that we stand firm with and for one another for the sake 
of the boldness of which you called us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for that reminder, and I pray that we are motivated to live more deeply for that cause. I ask this in your name. Amen. Hope you have a great day.